Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and Twitch, and sometimes I even upload the good bits. This is Previously Live. All right, I think it is recording now. Looks like everything is good. All right, everybody. Um, hello, and thank you for participating, coming to this forum. Uh, we get to hear leftist perspectives about the war on Ukraine. I have in mind, uh, my name is Robert Exta, and I would like to hear a little introduction from all of the panelists. You'd like to start, Hannah. Yeah, hi. Thanks a lot for inviting us. My name is Hannah, Hannah Perichoda. Uh, I am a PhD student in uh, Lausanne University in Switzerland. Uh, I study political history, and I am also a member of Committee of Solidarity with Ukraine and with Russian anti-war activists. And welcome. Um, Catherine, how about you? Hi. <laughs> Thank you very much also for invitation. I am a French uh, citizen. Uh, I'm um, involved in political activity, internationalist activity, since uh, more than uh, 60, uh, six, six decades. <laughs> uh, and uh, I have been involved, I, I am an economist involved in uh, uh, internationalist networks um, of the Fourth International, and also I am involved in now in uh, European network in solidarity with Ukrainian resistance in, in facing this this war. I will explain why. All right, welcome. Uh, how about you, Vosh? Uh, hello, my name is Vosh. Actually, it's Ian. Uh, that's the real name, and I am a YouTuber. <laughs> I have a, a bachelor's in sociology, but uh, it's it's really the YouTubing for which I'm primarily known. Happy to be here. All right, welcome, welcome. And Dennis, how about yourself? I'm Dennis Pilosh, and I'm an assistant professor of political science and international relations at the Kyiv National University. But first and foremost, I am a left-wing activist here in Ukraine. I'm a member of the democratic socialist organization called Sozialny Ruch, the social movement, and also uh, the editorial board of the local um, journal called uh, Commons, as a magazine for uh, social criticism. Uh, again, very excited to be here. Thanks. All right. So the format more or less today is we're going to hear from all of our panelists. Uh, then I have some questions, some of which are from, from DSA members, some of which are from my, myself. Uh, but without further ado, I'd like to hear from everybody. So I believe we're going to start with uh, Hannah. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. So Ukraine, let's start with, with the fact. Ukraine is the second uh, largest country in Europe, after Russia, of course. Um, its population now, until now, uh, was about 40 million people. No, uh, so it's a huge country. 
but its history is uh, very little known and it remained somehow in the shadow of the Russian historical narrative. And uh, yeah, I would like to say it clearly from the start, just my opinion is uh, that I think it's partly because of the ignorance of a historical dimension of Russian-Ukrainian relations that we are now witnesses of this uh, war that Putin's army wages against uh, the Ukrainian population. So let's speak about uh, some historical aspects uh, first. Um, in our imagery, uh, the notion of uh, colonization uh, mainly refers to the political domination and economic exploitation of some distant lands located overseas, inhabited uh, by people radically different from the ethnic and uh, cultural point of view. Uh, and this was actually the case for the European uh, maritime empires. Uh, their centers were separated from their colonies by the oceans, but in continental empires like Russia, uh, it, is, it was more difficult to draw the boundaries between the center and the periphery. And uh, Russian colonialism was not only a colonization, um, but also a huge project of assimilation. Uh, for, for centuries, uh, Russia was building a continental empire uh, that uh, was not only conquering in uh, other peoples, but uh, that also assimilated, tried to, tried to assimilate them. Uh, so Ukrainians uh, were ruled by those who didn't recognize them as a separate political cultural community, considering them instead as a part of their own uh, community. I love you, and Chad. the absence, uh, for instance, of the absence of a, a racial okay uh, difference between the. Uh, colonizer and the colonized and the cultural proximity made uh, their assimilation less visible uh, to outsiders. And uh, yeah, even in the 20th century, uh, when Ukrainians already had their own formal uh, statehood, the population was subject to assimilation policy. And despite the slogans about the friendship of uh, Soviet nations, uh, the Russian language and culture were de facto the only ones to be promoted. And more and more non-Russians in the USSR uh, abandoned their cultures and languages uh, that were perceived as uh, inferior. Um, so yeah, the Russian imperialism and Russian colonialism didn't enter the, our common imagination about colonialism, uh, which remains uh, paradoxically uh, very, very Western-centered, because we know what our uh, Western uh, imperial domination looked like. Uh, we are interested to study it. We try to deconstruct its heritage, 
but up until now we ignore uh, the non-Western empires and non-Western imperialism because they are perceived as kind of uh, exotic exceptions uh, from the norm. So yeah, Ukraine, uh, as you know, became independent in uh, 1991, but uh, Russian um, domination and uh, revanchist um, ambitions uh, persisted because actually the, how to say, the status quo was never really put into question. Uh, the status quo in which actually the former colonial core Russia has some kind of a right, a legitimate right to dominate fully its former colonial peripheries, like post-Soviet states and Ukraine in particular. Um, just a few words about uh, the uh, Russian contemporary imperialism. Um, it's um, somehow uh, driven by the resentment of a fallen or failed uh, empire. It's an imperialism of a state that do not have any attractive uh, political or economical uh, project to propose to, to the rest of the world. So it, it can only rely on its uh, military force, as we can see now. Uh, this is also an imperialism of a mission because it is convinced in defending conservative, traditionalist, uh, anti-modernist values and it's moving more and more towards uh, fascism. It has clear uh, uh, fascization tendencies. And the last uh, word that I wanted to say, and it's, uh, I think the, <laughs> we risk to have a debate over, over this uh, problematic, that in my opinion, Putin is not so threatened by NATO or the West or the USA as he wants us to, to believe. Uh, I think his main enemy is the people because any attempt of popular uprising is something Putin destroys uh, without mercy. And his main fear is that the peoples with whom the, Ukraine, uh, the Russians have strong ties like uh, Ukrainians, uh, Belarusian, uh, Kazakhs, uh, etc., that they will somehow succeed and succeed, for example, to bring down their autocratic regimes, to build more democratic societies, to eradicate um, corruption, to get rid of uh, mafia that took over the state institutions. Um, because in this case, the Russians may, may wonder and may ask, what about us? <laughs> what about, why do we continue to tolerate an inefficient and corrupt state? Why do we allow, allow a few dozens of oligarchs to monopolize the wealth of our country, to humiliate us, to exploit us, to earn billions on our blood so they could have a luxury life, uh, luxury life in the West, of course. Um, and the fear that the Russians will um, 
receive their sight is what drives Putin into these military adventures that can seem almost irrational to us. But I think they are very logical and very rational since we um, since Putin must actually maintain at all costs the system which allows his friends to continue to to enrich themselves and to to plunder uh, Russian wells. Uh, Putin cannot simply betray those who put him in power uh, 20, 22 years ago. Uh, so yes, as, as, as I see it, it's not <laughs> against NATO, but against the people's political will and political agency that Putin wages a war and he wages it for years already. And up, to, up till now, we did practically nothing to stop it. And the invasion and the war in Ukraine is kind of a culmination of this process. So uh, what we have now is that people of Ukraine are killed by thousands and those of the whole region are taken hostage by Putin and his clan and they are ready for any barbarity. And yeah, I know it could be maybe <laughs> hard to believe for, uh, for, for somebody, but, but this time it's not, it's not the Western imperialism, but the Russian one that, uh, that started the war and that threatens the world. And uh, we are on the verge of a huge international crisis. And we need to face it and also to search for solutions. Otherwise, the solutions will, can be provided by those who know how to give you know, easy answers. I mean, the extreme right. <laughs> and we have the problem of uh, extreme right populism in, in Europe, but also in USA. So I will stop here. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. I'll definitely, for the Q&A, have some follow-ups, especially about Putin fearing the people, not so much NATO. Um, so we'll, we'll revisit that in a little bit. Um, Dennis, I believe you are next. Yeah, so here in Ukraine, we, are, we have passed uh, already two months of this bloody war that was started with uh, unilateral aggression of the Russian right-wing dictatorship. And that has already resulted in uh, deaths of uh, tens of thousands of people. And also we have uh, tens of millions uh, whose lives have been broken, who lost their homes or who just had to relocate to become either refugees in some other European states or, or to move to a safer, relatively safer parts of Ukraine. So actually, even this week, that was a week uh, between the uh, Easter's on um, Catholic West uh, right and uh, Orthodox East right, we had lots of uh, strikes throughout the, the country uh, on different cities. And actually, um, um, people are have been and are dying uh, throughout the country, as in big cities, like in Kiev, Kharkiv, Odessa, Lviv. Um, but uh, in some places where the hostilities uh, were going on uh, and now are 
uh, yeah, the intensity is really enormous. And uh, um, the, that part of the invasion that moved from, from the north and moved to Kyiv, for instance, it has been already repelled, but it also revealed uh, the scale of the atrocities in uh, Kyiv region, in the suburbs of Kyiv, like uh, Irpin, Bucha, Hostomel. And actually, um, now we can say that uh, while this, uh, the entire war is an act of aggression, is a war crime of aggression, is something that is obviously uh, in the line of um, aggressions of all other imperialisms, uh, be it the Western one, as Hannah mentioned, yes, we 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 were uh, uh, we 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 all know very well what would happen to Iraq and what happened to other uh, places that were attacked by by U.S. military, and uh, Russia did this with uh, no less recklessness, uh, but also the these. Uh, atrocities ranging from all types of violence, uh, sexual violence, mass executions. Um, it really reminds us of some of the worst conflicts of, of, of our, our times. And uh, it has been compared to Srebrenica and these wars of, uh, at former Yugoslavia. But I would also invoke um, examples like the 1970s, um, Pakistani, Western Pakistani army um, suppressing the Eastern Pakistani now Bangladeshi population or Indonesian dictator Suharto occupying um, East Timor. So it's really on this verge of uh, ethnic cleansing and um, like uh, total uh, destruction of the, uh, not just infrastructure, but of the population as well. And um, now we have entire towns uh, in different parts of the countries that have been almost completely destroyed. Uh, and all, obviously, it also um, reminds us of the worst pages in, in our history, for instance, of the Nazi invasion against the Soviet Union, um, when the Soviet Ukraine was also heavily affected. And uh, but actually, what the one of the parallels is also uh, that as in that time the second world war uh, also the dictator in his bunker is meeting some uh, very uh, overwhelming uh, resistance uh, on the side of the population uh, not just military and actually now we have um, uh, not not just this hundreds of thousands of people who enlisted to either to, to the armed forces of Ukraine or to the territorial defense units. But we also have millions of people, uh, essential workers and volunteers in different humanitarian initiatives that actually uh, do everything to help others and to keep the things running, to to they actually constituting this uh, backbone of the resistance here in Ukraine. So uh, men and women, people, uh, Russian speaking, Ukrainian speaking, people of other uh, 
ethnic backgrounds, uh, Jews, Greeks, uh, Armenians, Azeris, you can continue. Uh, even the most dispossessed and the most uh, discriminated uh, communities in Ukraine, like the Roma people, we were just recently distributing some aid to uh, the local uh, Roma population. And uh, in, in this city, as in, in some others, they were crucial uh, to constitute the, the local uh, territorial defense units. So many people of the, the, the Roma communities that had been probably the most uh, excluded in, in uh, uh, Ukrainian and other Eastern European societies. Um, and also, uh, just uh, to draw your attention to what, what has been done by um, the railway workers who evacuated millions of people who saved their, their lives, by the healthcare workers who are risking their lives, and uh, as uh, hospitals, as well as other objects like schools, uh, are being targeted by, by the Russian missiles and the Russian aircraft. Um, and they are there at uh, close to the front line and saving human lives. And then you have also stories from, from everywhere, from, say, the people on the nuclear power plants, including those that have, has been, uh, have been already uh, occupied um, or attacked and who also were doing their best to um, ensure that the safety uh, is under control and there will be no meltdown and no new, new Chernobyl. So uh, actually, uh, you have also these spontaneous uh, solidarity networks uh, with people helping those who are uh, fleeing to seeking some asylum and also uh, distributing humanitarian aid uh, medicine, food, uh, and getting it to, to those who are in need. And um, people from from our organization, the social movement, and from from the unions are uh, uh, very engaged in, in all these processes. And actually, um, we also have to um, do uh, the necessary uh, work to protect the, the rights of the people um, in, in these harsh times of war. Um, as we understand that any ruling class uh, will can use the, the, the opportunity to somehow curb, for instance, the labor rights. And um, that has been one of the most um, specific uh, thing done by by our comrades to address um, those same essential workers who who are now sort of crucial for the uh, resistance, but whose rights are being targeted by the bosses. And uh, just uh, recent week, we again had an attempt to push uh, through a neoliberal law that would. Uh, make easier to, to sack people, sack workers, and to uh, diminish their rights. Uh, fortunately, it failed. Uh, and um, again, we, we need to stay mobilized uh, to, um, to vigil all, 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 all such attempts. And we also need uh, to provide international solidarity for, for the people of Ukraine. Um, 
and to put forward um, both those demands that are urgent for this moment. So obviously, people here, they need uh, any kind of um, assistance, any kind of aid, humanitarian aid, aid for uh, refugees, all people uh, who had to flee from Ukraine, regardless of their um, origin and uh, citizenship. Uh, but also, um, and I know that's in for, for many people in the Western left, it's a controversial issue, but the issue of uh, weapons delivery, again, just in order to survive, because it's a really existential uh, issue now, uh, whether we will exist not just as some separate entity, but uh, politically as a separate republic, but also whether we will physically exist, especially given uh, the... Uh, scale of these war crimes and crimes uh, against humanity. Uh, and just some anti-aircraft weapon, it can protect civilians in, in the cities from uh, the Russian missiles and Russian bombs. Uh, but also we put forward uh, more far-fetching uh, political and uh, economic demands that um, are very important for uh, the running as a the economy in times of war, but especially to recover, to rebuild, to reconstruct uh, the country after the war. And uh, we uh, push uh, these uh, demands, also showing that is that all, all these are not just issues of, of the war, of this uh, Russian war against Ukraine, but also the issues that are needed uh, globally, that, uh, uh, respond to the challenges that uh, uh, people throughout the world are facing. For instance, we are uh, demanding the uh, cancellation of Ukrainian external debt, and it's an issue that's in common for many peripheral countries. Ukraine, uh, one of the poorest countries in Europe, but the same issue is well known for the people in the global south, and this vicious circle of debt and IMF-induced uh, austerity, um, and just in order to, to have a just uh, society and just to, uh, again, to be able to reconstruct, uh, we need uh, to relieve this burden. And if we succeed, it will be a, a good template for, for all, all other countries, all other peoples who are... Um, struggling against the same problem. Then we have the issue for the same reconstruction. You, you will need uh, um, massive investment and we need to provide a more progressive, more socially just, socially oriented uh, framework for this in order to rebuild all the destroyed infrastructure and to uh, really uh, ensure that this will be uh, for the sake of, of um, the society, for the sake of, of, of uh, people, not, not for some vested interests of, of some businesses. And then we, we in general, can uh, raise this issue. Uh, for instance, like Russia's, Putin's criminal war in Ukraine, or Saudi Arabia's criminal war in Yemen. Uh, they show how uh, these two pressure, pressuring issues uh, of um, 
existential threats to, to humanity are interconnected. Both countries are fossil fuel empires. And here we see how the issue of war and possible destruction of the humanity and the life on Earth by, um, uh, by means of war uh, is connected to another destruction of, of a human and other life on Earth um, by uh, climate change. And we need to really uh, propose an eco-socialist alternative to the existing neoliberal capitalism, uh, heavily relying on uh, fossil fuels, and, and also on all these uh, wars of aggression and so on. So, and in general, we, we need to uh, look forward to some alternative to the existing world, world order when you have uh, big players uh, these grand powers, imperialists, who uh, view, especially in case of, of Putin's Russia, who really denies any kind of agency for not just Ukrainians, but particularly Ukrainians, and Putin was constantly addressing that uh, it's the fault of, of the Russian Revolution, of the Bolsheviks and Lenin, that Ukraine exists, um, and uh, he's really this uh, uh, referring to this uh, great Russian chauvinism of, of, of the Tsarist Empire. Um, but in general, that you have these uh, imperialist powers and you have the smaller uh, countries, uh, smaller people who are uh, subjected to their um, uh, aggressions and their trying to subjugate them into their spheres of influence. And we really need to democratize the world order uh, to uh, give a perspective from below, to give a perspective from um, those who had been uh, oppressed and dispossessed and denied uh, agency and subjectivity. So um, all, all, all this, uh, it really shows how um, this particular war uh, is not just a um, threat for, for, for the region, and, uh, but it also raises uh, the same issues that are uh, uh, important for, for the humanity. So uh, it's quite important to hear people from, from the ground and to uh, do comparisons and also to provide um, any solidarity you can to uh, not just relieve the situation of people here, but also to uh, try to create a more solidary, just and free world uh, in perspective. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. Um, we have a question about the IMF later. You had mentioned that uh, in your speech, so hopefully we get to that. Uh, Catherine, I believe you're up next in the order. Okay. Yes, um, um, first of all, I, I want to say that uh, I fully share what uh, Anna and Denis uh, just presented, fully. Um, I want to, to give uh, some uh, insight about the debate which uh, divide the, in particular, Western left. I am a kind of uh, dinosaur. Uh, of that uh, Western left uh, as an internationalist since uh, decades, I have said. But I want to summarize my point of view in, uh, in three points, uh, like uh, Denis and, uh, and Hannah said just before. 
uh, when uh, I go uh, to a demonstration today in France, for instance, uh, with Ukrainian uh, uh, person participating, they say if Russian troops uh, stop fighting, there will be no more war. And if Ukrainian force stop fighting, there will be no more Ukraine. Um, that is the key issue, because resistance of Ukrainian force needs arms, needs different aspects of the resistance, which uh, uh, Denis has uh, described, uh, armed and non-armed elements of resistance. But the second point is that, um, in general, the, the left is denying uh, the very existence of the society of Ukraine. And that is my second emphasis. My second emphasis in the debate within the Western left is to criticize those who reduce all interpretation of big events, uh, in particular since uh, 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the end of the Soviet Union, all those who resume big events in um, uh, through a kind of prism which is given by world order and uh, inter-imperialist uh, competitions or the main imperialist points of view. Uh, and this kind of uh, emphasis um, deny the very possibility of a society um, uh, to, uh, and uh, with its complexity and its conflicts, to resist world order. And that is precisely what is now the issue, and I, I'm absolutely convinced, and I would try to, to support this idea, that supporting Ukrainian resistance, armed and non-armed resistance, meaning supporting uh, all democratic, social, equalitarian rights of that society, is the way which would permit to get rid also to the militarization of the world and to get rid of NATO uh, and the dissolution of NATO, uh, which is, on my point of view, an issue since its very beginning, and in particular, which is uh, an issue since uh, uh, 91, since the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, is simply today not understandable and cannot be uh, um, supported in all Eastern European countries confronted to Russian aggression if there is no defeat of that concrete aggression. Well, I must precise uh, with what kind of uh, a point of view, I developed this, uh, this view. Um, in 68, as a dinosaur, I said, I was fighting against um, um, Soviet Union intervention in Czechoslovakia with uh, Soviet tanks. And I was um, um, involved in the committee in France and in other uh, links in, in Europe for a free and socialist Czechoslovakia.
there was no problem of NATO there, but already a great uh, Russian Stalinist kind of domination, which was a very uh, radical obstacle to the real building of a socialist alternative to the capitalist world. After uh, 1989, I thought I was involved uh, for my um, uh, professional activity, but also for my political activity. I have been involved in uh, the, um, the study and then uh, political activity in Yugoslavia, in the former Yugoslavia. And uh, I was fighting uh, against the, the way uh, the US uh, power used the Yugoslav crisis, and afterwards, the Soviet crisis also in 91 in particular, um, uh, and in 99 in Kosovo, uh, to rebuild, uh, to maintain, to extend, and to rebuild NATO when it should have been dissolved. So my point of view is, is paradoxically, I am uh, both in favor of sending arms to help the Ukrainian resistance, even from NATO's countries, because the arms are produced mainly by NATO's countries today. Uh, but I'm against the consolidation of a world dominated by NATO and by any bloc. And that means also the defeat of a Russian imperialist bloc itself. Uh, I came in contact with the Ukraine uh, left, Ukrainian left, um, uh, through the first experience, which was the beginning of the present ongoing war, that is Maidan, what is called Maidan revolt and upsurge. That is uh, the uh, big crisis in uh, 2014. And that was my um, first experience of a contact with the Ukrainian left, which uh, um, uh, Hannah and Denis expressed very well, which helped me uh, to fight against a Western kind of um, approach of even Maiden crisis at that time. That is, I am, um, uh, and I was um, in opposition to bilateral kind of dominant propaganda and presentation of that crisis. First, the uh, rosy picture of uh, the European Union presenting Maidan as a pro-European Union uh, upsurge, when in fact, uh, a Maidan upsurge become, uh, became massive uh, popular social upsurge uh, against Yanukovych's power because of its repression uh, and because of its way of functioning and deciding uh, to uh, suppress uh, possibility of partnership with the uh, European Union, choosing uh, more... Um, um, uh, Russian kind of uh, proposal, but the, the problem was not for the dominant part of the Ukrainian society um, 
um, the issue of being pro-UA like that. The issue was to have the right to choose. The issue was freedom. And the, the, the issue was against a repressive force uh, of uh, Yanukovych at, uh, at that time, and the way he decided by himself in a very uh, pyramidal uh, way of functioning. And um, so the presentation of Maidan as pro-EU is a simplification. But the presentation by Putin of Maidan as a fascist coup, an anti-Russian uh, fascist coup, is a complete caricature talk, too. And uh, that was also the, the, the beginning of a, a war which, uh, which was um, um, going on since years um, with more than uh, 15,000 uh, deaths uh, since uh, 2014, and a dead, deadline, uh, uh, and, and, and an impasse, impasse, I mean. I mean. And uh, this, um, uh, I must stress that at the period of uh, Maidan, um, the majority of the society, and uh, uh, Hannah and Denis could uh, um, say more than I can do about that, the majority of the society was more in favor of uh, neutrality uh, on the military point of view for uh, Ukraine than uh, uh, in favor of NATO. Uh, uh, that was uh, not at all the, the, the issue. And um, I would say that even in Donbass, um, pro-separatist current represented at uh, maximum 20%. And even the uh, so-called popular republic of Donbass do not represent uh, the majority of uh, the uh, opinion of the population there. And more broadly, do not represent the um, what was the, the the feeling and the attitude of uh, the uh, Russophone, the Russian speaking part uh, of the population uh, in in that um, in that uh, uh, region. You could have conflicts within Ukraine uh, about the language issue. You could have conflict within Ukraine on the democratic way of organizing that society. Um, and um, uh, our comrade, um, uh, for example, of Social uh, Nihruch, like uh, also Denis um, uh, stressed it, has uh, uh, launched uh, fights against um, the IMF kind of uh, uh, imposition of criteria, which are the very same criteria that the European Union tries to impose to all Eastern European countries and to Ukraine, that is the destruction of social services, the reduction of social rights uh, in defense of the oligarchic, uh, oligarch powers. And um, even within the war, as uh, Denis stressed, uh, and it was the case at that time in 2014, um, the dilemma, which is a false dilemma for that society, was to choose, and I would refuse such a, a choice, between uh, the, the kind of uh, 
uh, gas energy war that was launch launched by Putin to impose its own rule and uh, relationship of domination. And on the other side, the other kind of diktat, which the IMF or the UA wanted to impose against social rights and in uh, protecting more uh, uh, oligarchs than workers. So um, my emphasis uh, is was and is still now on the society, on the society uh, that is also on its uh, very resistance as a real agency to build uh, out of his uh, own resistance um, uh, different axes to rebuild another kind of relationship between people in Europe and in the world uh, through what uh, dimensions? First, um, of course, the, the, uh, the, the, the social, eco, eco-social, ecological and social uh, justice, um, um, uh, which is a, a very important issue, but you cannot even discuss this if you don't exist. That is, if Ukraine uh, doesn't exist as a political society with its own rule and its own democracy to be built. And of course, uh, if I, I would say that the first effect of Putin attacks since 2014 up to now, and now more than ever, is to consolidate a Ukrainian kind of identity, which is very different from a fascist, uh, racist kind of Ukrainian identity, which exists also. So you have different kind of nationalism or or different kind of uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, national uh, pride, if you want. The first one, is anti-Russian, is a racist, is anti, uh, is um, uh, would would not be uh, in favor of the uh, pluralist dimension uh, of uh, Ukraine, and um, and would also impose its own interpretation of uh, U- the Ukrainian past, whereas there is the need for all the currents I, uh, in Ukraine um, to get rid of uh, the crimes of the past, be they the crimes of the fascist and Nazi, uh, Nazi forces, or the crimes of the Stalinist uh, domination in Ukraine. And uh, that means a, a complete freedom of uh, uh, historical research which is very rich in Ukraine uh, today, on the point of view, on the point of view of um, a Marxist approach, a socialist uh, um, uh, approach, of an alternative uh, socialist conception uh, of the society, which recognizes self or uh, the rise uh, the right of self determination of all nations as a precondition of the building of an alternative society uh, and an, of an alternative union of people. Uh, that is why I fought uh, against Soviet intervention in Czechoslovakia, but it was also the case against uh, Soviet intervention in Hungary. Uh, and it, it is today, of course, 
a precondition of the building of an anti-capitalist Ukraine and Europe and the world to defend the right of self-determination of Ukrainian people. And um, uh, I will finish with uh, uh, just some comments about alternative, which are dividing the left, international left. Sure. There is uh, the first kind of uh, position, which considers that there is only one imperialism, that is NATO, um, and which says the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and which consider without any criticism anyone which oppose NATO. So if uh, uh, the Russian power says and proclaim that he is launching the war against NATO, so they would support uh, uh, Putin's war. Uh, in fact, there is, uh, of course, a problem of NATO, but that is not the reason of the war. The reason of the war is what has been said by the uh, by Hannah and and Denis before, and that has been said explicitly by Putin, uh, launching the the war, which was anti-Leninist against any recognition in the building of Soviet Union uh, 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 under Lenin's rule at the time of uh, uh, Belarusa and and of Ukraine as a, a separate nation uh, with Russia. And um, uh, so um, um, Putin's uh, against Lenin and in support of Stalin and in support of the old great Russian imperial ideology. Um, and um, so there is another imperialism. So a second position in the left is to say, okay, there are two imperialism. Russian imperialism and NATO, but they are put on the same level. Um, of course, in our political analysis, uh, before the war and after the war, we should put all imperialism in the same basket, of course, and the articulation of the um, conf confrontation and also alliance, because by the way, uh, the Russian power under Yeltsin was supported by NATO when he was launching his war in Chechnya. And uh, um, uh, Russia was uh, in favor of being member of partnership within NATO. And they have, and there are a, a certain interest in uh, launching the war in Syria uh, and so on. So, I mean, there is no uh, uh, one progressive imperialist and another one which would not be. Both are uh, like it was said before me, uh, with the very same anti-social, anti-democratic, with, of course, a very specific transformation of different current within the world into fascist one. And there are trends toward fascism in Western uh, countries, like in France, and there are trends in, uh, of that kind in the transformation of the autocratic regime of Putin into, into a fascist one, which is suppressing uh, trade union rights, uh, political rights, and uh, uh, all possibility to express uh, uh, even uh, in media uh, criticism and so on. So a part of the left say recognize this now, uh, uh, and but say, uh, like uh, in the First World War, uh, we are confronted uh, uh, to a war between 
to imperialism, and then we have to uh, propose and defend um, defeatism uh, and pacifism. And that is each one against its own imperialist. Uh, uh, okay for the Russian um, uh, uh, people and leftists to fight against Putin. That is their job. But we fight against NATO, uh, we fight against uh, Macron here and so on. And so we have some of our French leftists who go in demonstration saying Macron and NATO out of Ukraine as if Macron and NATO was aggressing Ukraine. So that is absolutely uh, impossible. Um, so it is not to renounce our criticism to Macron and our criticism to NATO, but to understand that we can uh, defeat the domination of all kinds of uh, uh, capitalist uh, uh, rulers, and I finish on that, if we understand that the existing war is not a, a, a direct war between NATO and Russia, it is a direct war between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, we, I don't, I would not like, and we would not support the transformation of this war into an international war between NATO and Russia. That is not the point. The point is to deliver uh, arms to the Ukrainian resistance, which permits it to defend itself. Defense, it means the combination of defense and offensive, of course, on the ground, but offensive against the Russian occupation of Ukraine. And that is the issue. And I will finish this saying that uh, um, through the sanctions against uh, great Russian power, it's not sanctions against Russian gas and energy that we must find, but it is sanctioned against fossil uh, productions. And it is not to replace Russian gas by US gas. Huh? It is to transform and to launch in Europe and in the world a radical uh, 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 transformation of the productive forces and the organization of the society in order to reduce radically uh, what is uh, destroying the environment today and both what is destroying uh, the humanity and the population, as uh, 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 Denis just uh, said. So both through sanctions and through the resistance, we have to fight for the precondition for the dissolution of NATO and the dissolution of military expansion in the world. And uh, therefore, we have to build another kind of united nation and, uh, and also uh, um, another kind of uh, union in Europe, which would include, include Ukraine and Russia, uh, but uh, after the defeat of Putin, of course. So I, I thank you very much, I must stop. Sorry to have been long. No, that was fantastic. In fact, one of our questions will be a follow-up. Um, hopefully we get to it um, about NATO dissolution because you commented on that quite a lot. and. Um, we have some follow-ups there. Uh, Vosh, if you would uh, do the honors to bring it all together. Would be my, uh, my pleasure. So I agree with much of what Catherine has said, and I'm deeply concerned about the way the Western left has approached this issue. See, we can't stop this war from happening, not as a singular political force. Uh, we can comment on it, and through our commentary, we can achieve a variety of political goals. 
We can attempt to make the life of working class people better in whatever edge cases we can try for. In this case, I think the working class people of Ukraine are suffering particularly disproportionately, but the people of Russia are as well. The sanctions that are targeting their country are going to have a massive impact in the quality of life of the people of Russia, who, of course, did not in any meaningful sense vote in this war. Uh, and I think it's worthwhile to talk about these issues in a way that uh, validates the legitimacy of our political perspective. You know, we can also make other people socialists by having good takes on this issue. And that's where I think we're really failing. See, a lot of Western leftists have passively adopted the hegemonic assumption of Western superiority that runs not only in our own countries, but around the world. It is impossible to grow up in the United States or England or France without adopting, at least passively, some kind of innate belief in the superiority of your political bloc. Uh, this is done actively and passively. To an extent, this happens in all countries, but we're quite good at it, and we are, of course, the global hegemon. Uh, and I think at a certain point, most leftists in the West, they realize, actually, America, or England or France, or the West in general, uh, is actually bad. <laughs> they realize this, um, and it, it, it turns, I think, for a lot of them into very much a... Um, oh, my parents aren't as knowledgeable as I thought they were moment. And it breaks them, and they never recover. And they spend the rest of their political careers framing all issues internationally around the framework of Western hegemon bad. Which, for the most part, is true. That's a useful framework, don't get me wrong. But it's not universally useful. The people who have framed, as Catherine pointed out, the current conflict as a war between America and Russia are particularly embarrassing. Uh, that is an unsustainable perspective. It is factually and demonstrably incorrect, you know. There are actually a number of comparisons that the Western left have insistently brought up that betray a deep ignorance of geopolitical um, engagement that is just really bad. I mean, especially given the history of leftism worldwide, you know, we, we, we used to be quite good at this, and I think we are sometimes selectively, but as a group, I mean, there are people comparing um, what's happening right now in Ukraine to the Iraq war. Now, how exactly these things are related in any fashion is a mystery to me. I still don't understand. As far as I can tell, the narrative seems to be America lied about the Iraq war 20 years ago in 19. Um, therefore, Ukraine and the rest of the world is lying that Russia's invading. I, I don't, you can't, there's no sense to it really. It's in one instance, my government did something bad. Therefore, in this case, another government, which is allied with my government, must in some way be impugned uh, by the transitive property of geopolitical nonsense. Uh, this is really bad for us in a variety of ways. First of all, of course, it does mar our support for the Ukrainian people. It, there is no empirical defense of Russia here. Obviously, support should be with Ukraine. To even pretend this is a worthwhile question or subject of discussion is just embarrassing. Um, but it, it really does mar our perspective somewhat to go, oh, of course, we denounce Russia's behavior, we support Ukraine, you know, and we denounce America's military uh, adventurism into Ukraine. It's like, what are you talking about? That's not happening. And it's, it, 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 even if it was happening, I mean, these qualifiers, you see these, um, it's the same thing racists do when they aren't racist, but, you know, when you add a qualifier to a strong political statement, what you're really doing is saying that you only believe that thing with a given set of caveats. And when people say stuff like, as the DSA did, you know, uh, the final third of their statement on the Russia-Ukraine conflict being about America needing to leave NATO, it's like, look, 
say I agreed with that perspective, as ridiculous as that is, America leaving NATO, you know, sure, fine. And why don't we just completely dissolve the Pentagon? You know, if we want ludicrous proposals, go for it. But um, to attach that to a statement on the ongoing war effort, why? But what it does to the average person is it makes us look like we're wiffle waffling. And that's because a lot of leftists are. Um, there are people all around the world, uh, in Africa, Asia, South Korea, everywhere, everywhere around the world, who like America. Um, sometimes it's because we, you know, whether the, it's true or not, we represent a kind of ideal of economic and political freedom. I don't think we do, but it's a perception a lot of people hold around the world. Oftentimes it's because of the ubiquity of our culture, our music and our movies, they reach the world, you know? And a lot of people have a sentimental appreciation for the states because of that. And, you know, there are political issues with the, you know, the spread of that cultural hegemony. But I think there's a categorical difference between support for America abroad and support for Russia abroad. When people around the world like America, oftentimes it's because they like 1990s animated Disney classics. That's sweet. When people in America like Russia, it's because they don't believe that Assad used chemical weapons on his own civilians. It's because they think that Russia had a legitimate geopolitical justification for the invasion of Ukraine. There is a very pointed effort to weaponize uh, sympathy for non-Western geopolitical blocs into a kind of propaganda network. You know, it would be like if there was this huge block of Americans living in, or, sorry, not Americans, American sympathizers living in Russia and their principal investment in America was they believed that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. And that was like the main thing they cared about, you know, and they went on forums to talk about how actually Bush was right. And it's like, I don't think this really happens. But again, America doesn't have a, a global propaganda network dedicated specifically to continuing to lie about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We stopped that uh, two decades ago, thank goodness. Russia today does have a global propaganda network trying to sort of cover for or give defense to its crimes. And I think we should be as critical of that as we rightfully were with our behavior over the Iraq war. Um, if anything, Russia puts less effort into their lies than Bush did with, you know, the weapons of mass destruction bit. A lot of Russian narrative concerning the invasion of Ukraine has been internally contradictory. You know, these pathetic attempts at false flags. They have lied and they have told incompatible internal stories. You have Putin one day saying they're denazifying Ukraine and then the next day talking about restoring the glory of the Russian Empire. How Lenin made a mistake by allowing for autonomy within the Ukrainian region. These are flatly contradictory arguments. But for some reason, there are a lot of people in the Western left who are just inherently sympathetic to the political defenses put forward by fascist or at least far-right populist countries when they're not a part of Western hegemon, which is very, very, very weird to me. You know, um, there is no leftist justification for defending Russia in any respect. The term critical support is supposed to refer to exactly that. You know, you're critical of a society, but you support them because they're doing some good and, you know, there's some friction, which is a product in large part of the, you know, like if you want to talk about Cuba, like, okay, fine. Russia is flatly far right and autocratic. There is nothing, not a single thing about it, which is America is closer to socialism than Russia is. They're both very far and somehow America is closer. It wor it's, it's worse than us in almost every demonstrable way. But yet this insistent narrative that because they're not part of the Western hegemon, it's a form of American exceptionalism. 
done in reverse, how America and the West broadly, uh, which we have tremendous control over, must be the root, not of all good in the world, but of all evil, that it is the central uh, you know, radiating force of unwellness and anti-socialism that must be opposed as a first principle. And every other principle, such as the autocracy or fascism or reactionary politics or military adventurism of Putin, those are secondary. The first priority is to attack the West. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm fine with attacking the West, but it has to be over real issues with real arguments. And all this really does is make us look like absolute lunatics to people who might otherwise be amenable to our perspectives. Now, I'm not saying that liberals are going to all flaunt to us if we take a different issue or take a different stance on this issue. They're not. Liberals are uh, obstinate in their own way. But I do know that we are made to look more radical uh, in, in a very indefensible way and less approachable when these are the types of issues that we choose to die on the hill of. Uh, this should be a simple one. Um, when Russia, a far-right country, invades Ukraine over false free, uh, pretenses while their leader, Putin, is giving blood and soil justifications for doing so, that anything could be produced from the left, but unilateral condemnation is an embarrassment for us. It muddies the waters, it cheapens our message, and it makes it difficult to recruit and approach people. We need to bury the legacy of the... Um, you know, the Soviet leftists. The Soviet Union is gone, and frankly, was never good. Uh, all it does now, this interminable association, is cheapen us uh, in contrast. It makes us look like a bunch of, you know, ailing diehards who are attached to an old world order and don't have anything reasonable or meaningful to say about the world as it exists today. Uh, that is very destructive for our image, and it's exactly in line with the propaganda that far-right groups have tried to push onto us uh, since the end of the Cold War. The idea that we're really just relics of a bygone era that are sort of jealously hanging on to the image of a dead Soviet empire because, well, because we're mad that we lost. This is a bad uh, avenue to take, and we should stop. Um, that's... Uh, at the end of the day, I think that's one of the most important things that the Western left has to do if we're to become relevant in the eyes of a, a broader range of prospective converts. Thank you so much. Um, we have uh, about a half an hour left, give or take, maybe give, I'm not sure. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not going to time anybody. Uh, we do have a bunch of questions to get to, but again, if it's a good discussion going, I'm not going to step in. I just ask that everyone please be respectful. Uh, they are pretty much open to the entire field. Uh, so the first question is, what does a realistic exit plan look like for Putin, um, assuming that Ukraine would agree to this? I, I, I will say I don't think there's any potential whatsoever for Putin to order a retreat unless he was able to secure a concession. Um, it, there's too, too much yes-men egoism present there. Uh, for him to, to issue a full retreat, to me, seems very unlikely. I don't know if there's anything, uh, any loss he could suffer that would uh, allow him to, to, to let that up on his ego. I, I would suppose that it really uh, will depend heavily on this balance of, of forces. 
and actually it's another um, another point for for uh, in an argument for um, arming and defending Ukraine because those people who uh, had the experience of union organizing they know very well when you are uh, negotiating bargaining against a, a powerful boss who has the power and who can crush you you need to have some uh, power behind you as well and uh, just in order to get him to the table and to have a proper negotiation when he will uh, really uh, treat you as as a subject as, as somebody um, you you need to really push him to 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 get him there so um, it, it really depends on uh, how um how how's the ongoing uh, stage of, of of war now they declared that they have this second uh, phase of so-called special military operation that is aimed on grabbing not just eastern ukraine uh, donbas and uh, nearby regions but also the southern ukraine cutting off uh, ukraine from the black sea and probably getting to Odessa and then to, to the Moldovan border. Um, uh, how, how it will really uh, go on. Um, and uh, at the same uh, time, we saw that uh, there were so many failures on, on the side of Russia in terms of logistics and many other stuff that uh, at the other side, we have the uh, this unity in, in the Ukrainian resistance that gives us some hopes that we will uh, somehow push him to, to negotiate. But still, I'm, I'm really uh, a bit concerned with uh, even this, the question when we uh, constantly try to, maybe to, to provide uh, Putin some uh, way out, to, so that we, we need to think uh, how he will... Uh, um, like um, have a, uh, some dignified way to 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 retreat. Um, I, I think that's really um, even how we put this question. It's really uh, important uh, not to um, try to justify the, the aggressor. Um, Catherine or Hannah, would either of you like a crack at this one, or are you good with what, what was said? Just, no, just uh, to say no, that I, I, I'm convinced that the uh, that Putin's aim uh, is so radical, is so radical uh, that he, he cannot exit like that, and that you cannot offer him something. I mean, it, it would mean what? Do, do you propose that you, Ukrainian population and powers stop resisting? Uh, what? Well, but what is, is weak? What are his weaknesses? Is important to stress. It has been already said first the, the, the morale of the army. Uh, the young people who, who are in, integrated in the troop in the uh, in the forces uh, are confronted to uh, to a resistance which is uh, much stronger than they, they thought. But there is another problem in Belarus. Huh? In Belarus, there is uh, today uh, 
uh, a strong repression, uh, which is important to stress, uh, against the trade unionists, uh, which oppose the war, and which oppose the 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 the, uh, the support of the war by uh, Lukashenko, and this is an element which uh, which uh, weaken which can weaken uh, Putin, and I put emphasis on on that on that thing, and it means that. Uh, we will try in Europe to organize trade union solidarity uh, to protect all those uh, trade unionists to resist uh, uh, Putin's war in Belarus in particular. Uh, so that is an, an important aspect. I, I want to stress a second aspect which weaken uh, Putin, uh, which is the fact that the, the society in Kazakhstan is divided also. And he, he hasn't received a, a clear-cut uh, clear support uh, here. And on the contrary, because the society also in Kazakhstan is uh, complex, combined with... Uh, um, uh, the, the people uh, uh, cannot understand also uh, such uh, aggression. So Putin's weakness and his defeat can come also uh, from... Um, uh, reactions in uh, in the other countries uh, around Russia. That's the point I wanted to stress. All right. Uh, any other comments about what a realistic exit plan would look like for Putin, or shall I move on? No. All right. Uh, in that case, I'm going to jump around the questions a little bit. I'm going to be very respectful of the time. I know it's late for many of you. Um, and uh, the next question is about um, uh, what would NATO dissolution actually look like, and is this an achievable left? Uh, excuse me, an achievable aim uh, from the left? I'd like to jump in on that, if I may, um, since my opinions might diverge somewhat. Uh, countries that have shared military goals are going to form military alliances. NATO and its existence are just an emergent property of a need at the part of the countries that are a part of it to form such a military alliance. An issue that I have with opposition to NATO is that so often what people are really opposing is the political and military hegemon of the countries that make up NATO rather than NATO itself. The archetype, the framework that we're talking about here is really just a military alliance, unexceptional, plenty exist all around the world. NATO is unique only in the strength of its alliance, of course, with Western Europe and America making it up. Obviously, it would be the strongest military alliance by far. Um, but there can be no dissolution of NATO in a world where there is a shared military interest between, well, the North Atlantic countries and whatever else they decide is, is a worthwhile addition. Just because that's, uh, you could only, what, you ban um, military alliances internationally? It just seems like a natural byproduct. I think the real goal should be to try to adjust the geopolitical circumstances, both of existing NATO countries and their neighbors, to make NATO a vestigial organization, you know, something entirely antiquated, which I feel it would be if it weren't for Russia's um, insistent antagonism in Eastern Europe. Uh, NATO, if it were just some meaningless vestigial framework that these countries were a part of, you know, you contribute your, your so-and-so to national defense, 
Um, I don't think anyone would talk about it. I just, I, I feel like it's often over fixated on as the wing of Western imperialism, when in reality, the World Bank and the IMF are the wings of Western imperialism. It's cultural and economic. The idea that NATO is like the, the you know, the, the, the envoy, you know, the Valkyrie of Western uh, power worldwide, that is simply not true. It's, it's our businesses. American and Western European businesses, uh, you know, work in tandem with the World Bank and the IMF to set up favorable business conditions in countries that have very low average wages and low levels of human development, and thus they exploit the labor and the resources there. That's how we do it. You know, the, the NATO, well, I'll tell you one group that uh, actually does mind NATO. It's Russia. And so often the perspective that we hear about what being a good international leftist is comes from Russia. It does. Like, let's not pretend that RT hasn't been one of the loudest voices in supplying this narrative. Um, they don't like NATO because it keeps them from invading, you know, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Let's be real. Uh, apart from that, I think it's a tangential issue that ideally would dissolve given better political circumstances. Uh, would anyone else like to jump in on this? All right, I feel like I delivered that. Well, actually, I tend to agree. So, uh, as it, uh, our our goal is really to make uh, NATO obsolete. One may um, argue that actually in the nineties, what uh, uh, Katerina has said that it, it was uh, actually the moment when the European um, security architecture could be uh, rebuilt around, for instance, the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe. Um, but unfortunately, that moment was lost. And uh, when uh, Russia was annexing Crimea, the only dissenting uh, member of, of the Russian parliament, Ilya Panamaryov, uh, he said, uh, who voted against, he said that this decision, it actually pushes Ukraine into the arms of NATO. And now Putin's aggression against uh, Ukraine is pushing uh, Sweden and F uh, Finland uh, to the arms of NATO. So actually, uh, uh, we can say that uh, the best uh, um, propagandist for, for NATO is uh, Vladimir Putin himself. And he is uh, the reason for this existence of NATO. And we can say that at this moment, probably, um, the ruling classes in different members of NATO, they have different motivations. So obviously the US needs NATO to link Europe and subjugate in some way. Western Europe needs NATO to reduce its uh, um, uh, military spending. And it was what uh, Trump tried to impose on them these increases. And Eastern Europe uh, is uh, really concerned with the prospects of, of some Russian aggression. And they, they see it as something inevitable to, to have some shared protection. Uh, and actually, again, Katrin also described how the um, support for, for NATO membership in Ukraine increased due to the precisely the, the Russian aggression. So it's, it's like a self-fulfilling uh, uh, prophecy. Yep. So really, we need to just dismantle the, the existing system of, of this uh, uh, um, inter-imperialist uh, uh, competition. And it can be provided uh, only by uh, uh, completely uh, other, other type of uh, politics, including this international politics. Uh, 
Um, yes, I, I share what uh, Dani just said. Unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, for the moment, uh, Putin, one of the, the, the first, I, I said one of the effects of Putin's war was to consolidate Ukrainian resistance, but it was also to consolidate NATO. And uh, uh, at uh, immediate uh, level. So, uh, but um, I would say that uh, several aspects should be discussed in between now and the dissolution, the condition of a dissolution of NATO. Uh, first, the question, which is uh, discussed by Gilbert Ashkar in a recent article published in uh, Jacobin which is um, about the increased budgets, uh, military budgets. Um, uh, the, the idea that uh, uh, sending uh, arms for Ukraine means the increasing of military budget everywhere is, is absolutely wrong. There is a, a huge dis discrepancy uh, between the, the level of uh, of those military budgets and what is used for Ukraine and what is needed even for Ukraine. So, I mean, it is a complete hypocrisy. And, uh, and this, this has to be uh, denounced. And for instance, also our German uh, comrades, for instance, could both uh, agree uh, to support Ukrainian resistance and uh, disagree with the global uh, uh, consolidation uh, of um, uh, uh, such a budget and, and, and uh, of uh, uh, NATO construction. So, I mean, so that's one element. And an argument against such a budget is uh, first of all, uh, uh, also to, to the, 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 the issue of uh, what is another humanitarian urgency uh, in, in front of uh, the, the climate crisis and in front of the COVID crisis, that is the uh, health crisis, that is the priorities for the society, using the budget for uh, something else. And uh, also you, using, uh, and uh, Gilbert Ashka also stressed one thing. He, he said in, uh, in front of the, the, the Second World War, um, um, there was huge uh, changes in 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 the um, uh, in the budget precisely and but also in the production what is produced when it was for a for a world war is there the need for a budget for a world war the the issue of nuclear dangers and the fact that there is no that there is a, a regional real uh, problem for Eastern European countries, for those who are uh, uh, around Russia, but there is no danger of a world war and no need for such budget of a world war and with the nuclear uh, dimensions of that. So the concrete treaties for disarmament, concrete treaties for denuclearization are also uh, intermediate uh, dimensions for the uh, the fight 
uh, against the global increase of, of NATO. So I would uh, stress uh, this aspect. You're good, Hannah? Nope, all right. Uh, well, I'm gonna, we have two more questions that we can get through. Uh, I'm gonna tie this one together and then we're gonna end on a question about sanctions. Uh, so we're kind of gonna skip over the IMF because I think that will be a little bit too involved and deep um, or at least lengthy. Uh, Hannah, you had mentioned specifically that Putin fears the people, that in many respects, NATO is a smokescreen. Hopefully I'm not uh, misunderstanding or misexpressing what you had spoken about earlier. I wanted to get the panel's thoughts on this. And if I was saying that incorrectly at all, Hannah, I'll let you lead off to maybe correct uh, that statement. It's uh, more or less, more or less uh, what I wanted to say. But uh, the fact it's not to say that the uh, NATO expansion is a non-existent thing. Uh, it's not to misunderstand the real causes of, of the wars uh, uh, Putin are starting, uh, not only in Ukraine, but also in the other countries like Georgia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, etc. And he didn't start the invasion of of these countries because uh, of NATO. He started the invasion of all his post-Soviet uh, neighbors when in these post-Soviet countries people wanted to make a revolution or to uh, put into question the autocratic regimes. So yeah, we can say that the discourse about the NATO expansion is a smokescreen, but the NATO expansion itself is an exists and like Catherine explained very well and Denise. Uh, so yeah, if uh, somebody has a comment on it. Yeah, I just think that even if that was the case, that NATO expansionism is prompting Russian aggression, which I don't believe it is, um, there's a critical difference between an explanation and a justification. If you're conflating the two, then you normalize a lot of really bad political principles. After all, fear of an international Jewish banking class was one of the listed justifications for the war crimes of Nazi Germany, but nobody here, nobody sane, would use that as a defense or a justification of what they did. Um, listed reasons, perceived fears, these are useful in a sociological sense. Why are people doing what they're doing? What reasons do they have? What motivations do they have? How can you convince them otherwise? But to use them as a moral defense or as a prescription is very, very dangerous. Um, after all, if you look at the history of Putin's regime, it's not as though his criticisms have been relayed exclusively at Western hegemony. There have been plenty of internal ethnic and uh, identity-oriented uh, uh, criticisms that he's made that he's used to justify uh, uh, very reactionary policies he's put through, you know, pertaining to, for example, gay people. Would we take him at face value when he says that the corruption of Russian culture and the degradation of Russian masculinity are the reasons he had no choice but to, you know, uh, criminalize the depiction of homosexuality on media. If you take that too far, if you take that any distance, really, it's it's ridiculous. Um, whatever the reasons he may think he has, the invasion is unjustified. There's no moving past that. Yeah, just just uh, wanted to add one more uh, <laughs> sentence about the uh, what was just said and about maybe historical um, parallels we can make. We can say that actually not NATO is kind of responsible for mishandling the um, 
the victory uh, or the situation after the victory of the Western Bloc, uh, the Western Bloc in the in the Cold War, uh, just as uh, European powers also were responsible for mishandling Germany's uh, defeat in the World War uh, One, the uh, First World War. But uh, if we made it parallel, parallel, we can say that Ukrainians are no more victims of NATO than the Jews were victims of the Treaty of uh, Versailles, uh, saying that there is not um, just to to give a comment uh, uh, on, on what was just said. Yes, I. I can just add something. Uh, uh, first of all, um, to go to repeat what Anna said uh, about the, the use of uh, what what is the, the formulation using NATO as a, a smoke screen. Uh, on one aspect, it was a, sp a smoke screen because, um, uh, in in fact, Putin's main uh, real. Uh, motivation was explained by him, himself uh, saying uh, that he, he was uh, fighting against Lenin's recognition of the right of self-determination of Ukraine. That has nothing to do with NATO. Uh, so the, the, the great Russian dimension of uh, uh, Putin's aggression has nothing to do with NATO. Uh, it has to do uh, well, with that uh, great Russian ideology. Second, uh, it is uh, of course true that, um, uh, as I said, the, the fact that NATO was maintained is uh, um, is a problem not for Putin, for for everyone. It it was a problem like like it was just said by by Denis also uh, that there was a period where, uh, of course, um, international actors uh, and the left in particular should have uh, fought against uh, that uh, uh, the situation. But um, the, uh, what is important is uh, what is said just now also to distinguish explanation of a context and justification. The explanation of the way NATO was maintained and expanded is in no uh, way a, a justification of Putin's war uh, and de facto um, uh, produce the exact opposite effect on NATO. Uh, that is the consolidation of, uh, for the moment, of NATO. That's all. I will right. probably say just, just, just a couple of words. Uh, yeah, you, you have a uh, uh, traditional um, hegemon in a region, uh, a traditional empire there. For instance, as you have uh, the United States and Latin American states, and uh, it uh, treats it at, uh, as its backyard, all this region, and uh, when it feels that it has to intervene, it uh, may invoke some um, security concerns, yes. Uh, just like, uh, again, Reagan's administration was saying that there are some threats from Grenada, so uh, we need to intervene there, or we need to um, 
again back uh, some uh, right-wing dictatorships in Central America because some foreign powers may uh, get to our borders. And uh, you can see some um, parallels with these Russian justifications. Uh, but really, uh, like uh, Russian uh, regime at its core, it's really afraid of any kind of popular mobilization. And it was suppressing it on its own uh, territory and also in the neighboring countries. And it's like uh, in the mid uh, 19th century in times of Marx, the Russian Tsar Nicholas I was called the gendarme of Europe because he was eager to suppress any kind of revolution. Um, the same uh, Putin and his uh, ultra-conservative borderline fascist ideology. Now it's, uh, we can say it's full-fledged fascist. It's, it's really very anti-revolutionary and anti-popular in the sense that uh, it denies any kind of agency for the masses as well. And it regards any revolution, any revolt, any protest as something that it, it has to be some conspiracy uh, behind it. It has to be some uh, foreign power meddling. Uh, the people cannot... Uh, push their discontent to some revolution on their own. It's uh, some game of uh, foreign intelligence. And it's um, the motivation for its own suppression of uh, Russian opposition as well, and Russian anti-war movement now. I, I, I want to add uh, some comment on that. I fully agree with what Denis just said. <laughs> I, I only want to add that this kind of uh, Interpretation is not only Putin's kind of interpretation. It is shared by a, a large part of the left uh, in the West. That is, uh, when I, I said in the beginning that I, uh, I, I support the, the need for the left to put emphasis on the society, its evolution, its complexity, and so on, it is an opposition to this other part of the left, which reduce all uh, social movement to uh, um, um, completely um, marginal uh, agency, completely dominated by world conspiracy. And of course, uh, there is an element of truth on uh, the fact that uh, all powers, by the way, be it uh, Russia or be it uh, the, all the, the Western powers, and in particular, uh, US, uh, uh, U.S. power are using uh, all uh, social upsurges and uh, revolutions for their own interests and are trying to corrupt uh, those movements. So this is a, a, a huge reality that we should not underestimate. That is, it was, it was true in, in, uh, against the, the, the Polish uh, upsurge and events and trade union uh, in in uh, at the at the turn of the 80s with Solidarność and afterwards it was also true against uh, miners trade uh, strikes in in uh, Soviet Union and uh, later on um, in in all movement in uh, Arab Spring and and elsewhere that the U.S and all big power try to corrupt uh, the movements. Uh, that doesn't mean that the movements were, uh, since the very beginning, instrumentalized and lost completely agency. 
this, this is the point. And, and, and for instance, to, to, to come back on Ukraine, I, I think that there is also, for instance, a big difference between the illusions that the Ukrainian population could have in the so-called democratic parties, which were supported by the West in the Orange Revolution of 2004, and then uh, 2014. Because in 2014, uh, the population could, uh, uh, as, as a real actor, <laughs> I would say, in its complexity, could make a certain concrete judgment on uh, all those parties which were presented so, as so-called democratic, civilized, and pro-European, and which became very rapidly completely corrupted and uh, dominated by different uh, oligarch uh, oligarchic interests and so on. And therefore, uh, in 2014 and, and since then, in all the political life in Ukraine up to now, there is a big crisis of all political parties, be they fascist, be they pro, uh, pro, uh, uh, be they liberals, uh, pro UA, and so on. They they have big difficulties uh, and to 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 win the confidence of the population to, to be sued. and uh, that is because there is uh, also this experience of strong corruption from everywhere. And we should not underestimate and, 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 and suppress the criticism of the corruption coming from all sides. Uh, corruption from the Russian power with gas, energy, and so on and so forth, and corruption from um, the forces of uh, um, uh, the protectorate, uh, for instance, in Kosovo, uh, 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 from the European Union uh, or from the US. Uh, so this is um, this is to say that in, at the very mo at the very moment when we uh, criticize this presentation of the situation um, uh, from Putin or from the left, which reduce any agency uh, from the society, we must not underestimate the real power of corruption. Uh, uh, from all those powers, uh, that is uh, unfortunately one of our problems. All right. <clears throat> um, I know it's we've run a little bit late. We have one final question. I hope that this is not too late for our panelists. One last one. Absolutely. Okay, great. Um, that uh, this is how we're going to end the night. Is we want to know uh, what sanctions, if any, should we and we in this case means USA. On uh, European leftists, uh, what should we support on Russia? I will simply say that uh, we should support whatever level of sanctions are necessary to make it extremely clear to the people in Russia who do make these decisions uh, that there is absolutely nothing of worth to be gained through warfare. Nobody will profit from it on their end. It will be universally destructive. If it ferments um, antagonism and discontent within the population, that is desirable as well to the extent that their country needs a contented population, which is not broadly true. Uh, unfortunately, we're just dealing with higher stakes here. Uh, Russia has a tremendous supply of nuclear weapons. And if they continue down the path they have been going down for the past couple of decades, I fear they might one day use them 
with their military adventurism, their constant nuclear posturing with their neighbors. It seems like that government is uniquely unstable when it comes to its use of these weapons. And I don't think there's any solution to this problem outside of redirecting Russia's current course of behavior towards one which involves more soft power and less hard power. If they want to bully their neighbors with trade deals like like we do, then at least that doesn't contain within it the potential to end the world in nuclear hellfire. But the direction things are going right now, hardly a week goes by without them threatening to nuke the West. And it's not like they're North Korea with, you know, what, three warheads and a shanty ICBM that was probably made with duct tape? They could do it. Uh, I fear that as, as difficult as the path is, whatever direction we can push them on, which is not the one they are on currently, is ideal, and sanctions are a way to do this. Ideally, ones which target the oligarchs. Um, and when that is done, and when the direction is changed, I think we should spare no expense in rebuilding Russia. Not with NGOs and cynical, you know, World Bank cash grabs, but a real effort to fix the damage we've done to the working class in Russia. Uh, we are only doing this insofar as it changes the political, you know, maneuvering of their country, not to punish the people over there. Uh, would anyone else like to weigh in on this question about Russian sanctions, if any? Well, maybe, yes, a few words about the uh, sanctions. I think the only um, important and really game-changing sanction against uh, Russia is the embargo on oil and gas. And I'm sorry if I will repeat some uh, arguments from what was just said, because I had a bad connection. So unfortunately, I didn't hear uh, the previous speaker. Uh, yeah, just wanted to say that the only way to stop uh, Putin is to deprive him of um, financial resources to continue the war. And the uh, Russian economics is fully based on the expectation of uh, fossil uh, fuels and uh, gas, that means gas and oil. Um, and it's also important to say, to emphasize that the embargo must be uh, total and not partial because uh, um, if Russia had still uh, money, uh, it will direct this money to finance the war and will completely abandon uh, all the you know uh, social obligations toward its uh, this its population uh, that would just starve uh, the Putin, Putin will continue this war as as long as he has uh, money to do it um, and uh, it's crucial to say that the embargo uh, will be in place until Russia can provide um, credible <laughs> proof. Uh, of no further aggression in Ukraine, it, it, uh, uh, that it will withdraw its troop from Ukraine and also can provide can give a proof that it will not um, continue its aggression elsewhere. And we can understand that it will not be capable to, to give such kind of proof as long as Putin is in power. <laughs> uh, and... Um, I think um, also um, it's important to say that 
not implementing such kind of total embargo on oil and gas from Russia will firstly uh, prolongate the war in Ukraine, which already has a very high economic costs, of course, in Ukraine, but also for, uh, for Europe, for example, and for, of course, for Russia. And uh, the prolongation of this war means also the uh, crisis uh, in the uh, Middle, Middle Eastern and uh, North African countries, with, uh, which are totally dependent on the exportation of Russian and Ukrainian agricultural products. And uh, uh, if now we have 4 million refugees from Ukraine that go to, to, the, uh, to the Western Europe, in a few uh, more years, or maybe in one year, if the war continues, we will have lots of more refugees coming from other countries because of the famine, because of the fact that there will be nothing, nothing to eat there. And I think we must take it, take it seriously. So the only way to avoid this uh, global humanitarian catastrophe and political catastrophe is to stop this war as as uh, as quickly as as possible and also there is a problem that um, this short term economic um, vision that uh, states that states that uh, europe and other countries will lose a lot if they cut uh, oil and and russian gas it fails actually to capture uh, the costs the possible costs from the uh, further further continuation and the escalation of war uh, that, as I said, threatens to involve more countries uh, with potentially uh, very catastrophic consequences. So we need to compare. We, we have no reasons to compare the situation of embargo with the status quo. The status quo doesn't exist. We are going towards the uh, global crisis the global crisis on, on many levels, and we need to compare two situations. Uh, we cut oil, uh, oil and gas now, or the war will continue and will cost a thousand and millions of uh, deaths, not only in Ukraine, but possibly in the other countries. Denis, you want to, to add something? I, I wanted to, to, to second uh, what uh, Walsh and uh, Hannah have said. Uh, so, yeah, it's um, Putin's regime is threatening the world, not just with uh, nuclear arms, but also weaponizing the, this issue of hunger. And uh, the people in the uh, countries of the global south, they will be uh, really the... The, the most suffering in this in this case, uh, and that's why we need to put maximum pressure on the Ru Russian ruling class, and this obviously the main the main part is this embargo on Russian fossil fuels, but also uh, when we have all these sanctions against the, the Russian oligarchs and the Russian members of the Russian ruling elite, that is this nexus of of oligarchs bureaucrats and uh, security forces uh, leaders, um, it still has too many exemptions and loopholes that are rooted in the system of, again, of the global capitalism that has lots of tax havens, uh, lots of other uh, ways to uh, 
for for money laundering and all this stuff when you um, actually like uh, Russian and also Ukrainian oligarchs and I suppose it's a majority of the uh, capitalist classes throughout the world they rob their populations and then store uh, that wealth that assets somewhere abroad where the taxation is uh, more preferable for them so we also need to um, connect this uh, question to the demand for uh, dismantling the current system, this offshore capitalism of, of tax havens. And um, again, we need to uh, really make uh, the life of uh, the Russian elites. It's not just a, a couple of oligarchs, but uh, also in general, these rich people who also benefited from the systems that uh, Putin was uh, safeguarding to make their life, um, I don't know, uh, really uh, uh, unsufferable, un un I don't know how, to, uh, to, to, to really push them uh, to, to this point when they uh, will, will be forced to, to do concessions. Um, because uh, it's really a very urgent question, and every every day of this war, it uh, brings more deaths in Ukraine, and it also threatens uh, more lives uh, abroad as well. All right, in the interest of time, Catherine, I think you had something to say, so I'm going to give you the final words of the night. So, well, I fully agree with what has been said. It's uh, only to finish on uh, uh, open question for further debates, uh, because uh, we need to follow uh, new process which are ongoing now. First, uh, behind the sanctions, the financial sanctions, there is a, a, a new issue which is raised more and more and which will be raised more and more, which is the reorganization of the monetary system, world monetary system. The crisis of the domination of the dollar is a, uh, um, uh, something which was not um, um, forcible, but which is behind the, uh, um, the fact that uh, the sanctions on monetary dimensions pushes to, towards the use of, of other uh, currencies and other forms of relations. So that's one point to be discussed. And the second point to be discussed is to the, the follow-up of uh, um, the, uh, the 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 left uh, the the action of the left in in each countries in order that the the more depositist uh, uh, part of the population uh, do, do not suffer the most of uh, the effect of uh, the crisis in general and uh, for instance uh, um, the the fact that. Uh, um, uh, our own oligarch and our own rich people in the West uh, should be uh, precisely attacked themselves in order to protect the level of life of the, the workers and of the poorest part of the population in the context of the crisis. That's all. Okay, I stop there. All right, I want to thank everybody for showing up. Uh, it was a real pleasure. I hope everyone enjoyed it and hopefully learned something. Uh, Catherine, Vosh, Dennis, Hannah, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me.
Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Robert. All right, I'm going to stop the recording. Um, and um, thanks, everybody, again. Recording stopped. Day. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. Um, I, I'll do a follow-up email to you, uh, with the recording and all that if anybody wishes to see it or uh, transfer it. But I know it's very late in Europe, so have a good night. <laughs> Take care. And thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.